I began my research not knowing that I was even beginning my research. A quick trip to New York City landed me in the lobby of Punch Drunk's Sleep No More, a three-hour immersive theater piece. I spent hours wandering through the beautifully designed six-story warehouse by myself, touching props, eating candies, and watching the actors perform just inches away from me. I walked through hidden corners of the hotel and wandered down the street to find a lonely actor. Noticing my approach, the actor quickly reached his hand out to me, and I was soon yanked into a funeral parlor with the swift slam of a door and a turn of a lock. Before I had time to process what was happening, the actor and I were alone. He barricaded the door and pulled down the window shutters and slowly led me to a back room. Another lock. Then he took off my mask. Was I about to experience something that no one else should see? Was I in real danger? Was this even a part of the show? Or was I about to experience something that others shouldn't see? He caressed my hands and face and fashioned a necklace around my neck. As I turned to leave, he grabbed me by the shoulders, kissed me on the forehead, and pushed me back out onto the street. In any other setting, entering a locked room with a strange man I met in an alley would leave me with trauma. But I wanted to do it all over again. Hello, my name is Haley Scott, and I'm thrilled that you'll be joining me in listening to my research on the psychological dangers in participatory theater. Since the beginning of the pandemic, I have been able to transport myself to these wonderfully dark and seemingly unexplored corners of the theater, mainly from the comfort, or sometimes discomfort, of my own couch. Isolation has seemingly brought me closer to all the weird and wonderful pieces of performance art that exist outside of our traditional theater walls and pop up in places like our phones and on Zoom. When we think of the word participatory, we need to think of the word audience. Rather than sitting in their red velvet seats in a dark venue, sucking on candies and clapping and laughing at socially appropriate times, we should think of audiences who are asked by the actors to engage with all their senses. Now, the audience are on their feet, talking and touching and smelling and even eating alongside the actors. And the word performance begins to inch closer towards reality, both in terms of experience and, unfortunately, consequences. It's easy to identify when physical harm has been done. It can be seen and felt by both the observer and the subject. There is a simple dichotomy. Either a harm has been done or it hasn't. However, psychological harms can be harder to identify, even if you're the one being harmed. Luckily, I left sleep no more feeling giddy, but someone else could have left feeling traumatized. How could the same performance lead to drastically different responses? So, this leads me to my research question. Where are the psychological dangers in participatory theater, and how can we make them safe for audience participants? Well, where do we start? First, we must understand how emotions are constructed, as well as how danger can be both thrilling and harmful. I will then explore Antonin Artaud's theater of cruelty theory, as well as my new theory called theater of care. Finally, I will then propose practical safeguards for artists to implement without sacrificing their artistic intent. I'm so happy that you'll be chatting with me today as we explore this exciting form of theater 
chat with some people in the biz, and dig into the juicy dangers found in theater. How would you respond if I made you angry? Would you slam your fist on the table or would you lean back in your chair and give me the stink eye? Would you laugh? What if you did something that made me angry? Do you think you'd be able to recognize if I was actually mad? Welcome to Haley's Psych 101. Before we jump into the juicy details of what can make silly old theater dangerous, first, I think we ought to explore how our minds work and what danger really is. Psychologist Lisa Fieldman Barrett states that emotions are not reactions to the world. They are your constructions of the world. Her research explores how we create, shape, and express our emotions. Based on our upbringing, culture, language, and experiences, we are truly unique. Beginning in infancy, when you feel an emotion, let's think fear, the brain then captures the events, sights, sounds, tastes, and physical sensations to understand what fear is and why you feel that way. You instinctively remember these feelings and create a concept of fear. When faced with another event that has similar sights, sounds, tastes, and physical sensations, your brain begins to predict by using your past experiences to determine if you're experiencing that same emotion. If you are correct, your brain then continues to hone that concept to minimize prediction error. Okay, well, what does that mean? Okay, let's pretend that you're now six months old. The sun is buzzing and you're having a picnic. You're nestled in your mom's lap and all of a sudden, a green snake starts to slither around your chubby little leg. You gurgle and giggle because it tickles and it has a funny looking tongue. Your mom, on the other hand, shrieks and pulls you away, causing your heart to pound, tears to flood your eyes, blood rushing through your ears, your mouth to dry, and you wail along with your mom. You just experienced fear. And as you grow up and start to feel that pounding feeling in your heart again, you unconsciously recognize that it is fear. However, emotions are dependent on the individual's past experiences, language, culture, and social expectations. That means that my construction of fear is different from yours as a result of our unique experiences. Now, because I'm a theater nut, I like to hunt out the performances in our everyday life. And one of them is how we show or perform our emotions. The words we use and the social interactions we have are super important when it comes to honing, predicting, and conceptualizing our emotions. In a way, the expression of our emotions is really just a performance that expresses our sensory changes. If I clench my fists and snarl when my face gets hot and my blood starts to pump faster, I'd be showing you that I'm angry and that I need my needs met. The outward expression of my emotions is a performance that notifies whoever I'm with that I'm feeling a certain way. Now, whenever we feel an emotion and are about to perform the outward expression of it, we have two questions to think about. One, will this performance help notify another person to help me satisfy a need? And two, 
Will I continue to be accepted in society if I perform my emotion this way? Much like honing our emotions conceptualization, we tailor our emotional performance to ensure our needs will be met. As infants, we cry to notify our mom that we need to be fed or are seeking comfort. As we grow older, we learn new performance strategies to better articulate our bodily changes. Now, we don't usually cry when we're hungry. Society has constructed emotional performance expectations that determine an appropriate response to one's bodily changes. Our emotions become a mirror of societal values. During a funeral, it's expected that you can cry to notify others that you require comfort. However, suppose that your uncle's performance of grief results in boastful laughter. In that case, he gets labeled as weird, and instead of receiving comfort, he's the topic of gossip and rejected from Thanksgiving dinner because his emotional performance at the funeral showed happiness rather than grief. This failed attempt at emotional performance will encourage the weird, laughing, grieving uncle to continue to hone his emotional conceptualization until he successfully satisfies his needs and maintains his social status by going to Thanksgiving dinner. In classical or bourgeois theater, where the audience sits in a dark venue, the performers rely on the audience's basic understanding of emotion, so they can easily understand and recognize the character's emotions. The audience knows Lady Macbeth is terrified when she is screaming at her bloodied hands. In participatory theater, this relationship is almost flipped. Performers become the ones who monitor their audience's emotions. Participatory theater relies heavily on the audience's emotional engagement. Actively engaging with the performance asks more of the audience in terms of emotional engagement, which asks more of the performers in terms of monitoring their audiences. When performances encourage patrons to engage intimately with their work, they must be prepared to encounter various and sometimes atypical emotional implementations and tailor their participatory aspects accordingly. Performers must recognize that everyone's performance of emotion is different. Some may laugh when they're uncomfortable. Some may cry. Some may become physical. Director of Counseling at Queen's University, Rina Gupta, explains that to promote a safe space in participatory theater settings, performers must not rely on physical cues, as they are often unreliable. Bodily changes and emotions have often been internalized for a long time, and at the point of outward expression, psychological damage would have already occurred. So, what do we do with that information? Well, we need to look at what danger is and what trauma is in order to create constructive resources for artists to make a safe space. Our perception of danger can be categorized into three different zones, safety, danger, and trauma. The safety zone is where we feel completely safe in our environment. The danger zone is where we feel like we could get hurt in our environment. And the trauma zone is where we have experienced physical, or psychological harm. To understand which zone we are in, we possess something called a protective frame. It is a psychological boundary that warns us when we are about to transition 
from the danger zone to the trauma zone. Think of it as if it's that funny feeling in your tummy when you sense that something is wrong. Audiences expand their protective frame because they think they're safe. That's why I could go into a locked room with a stranger and sleep no more, but not in the streets of Kingston. I expanded my frame so I could fully engage with the art's thrill. However, trauma can still occur. Although the audience's protective frame has expanded, their ability to experience trauma is still the same, which makes it difficult to recognize when you're actually in danger. If all of your friends jumped off a bridge, would you? I can remember my mother saying cliche statements like this to me from time to time when I would flirt with the idea of making a poor decision. My mother also bestowed large amounts of wisdom that I proudly carry on a day-to-day basis. However, I (laughs) admittedly chuck a majority of that wisdom out the window when I engage in participatory theater. Now that we have covered the psychological groundwork, we can begin to look at how that applies to participatory theater. Although audiences are typically aware of participatory elements before purchasing a ticket, the level of participation is often not disclosed in full to maintain an element of surprise. If triggering subject matter is explored or the environment is too stimulating, audiences often fear of being a bad participant if the performance is too psychologically overwhelming and they no longer want to participate. This often results in them sucking it up and ultimately experiencing trauma. There's a hierarchy in the theater environment. Although the audience is paying for a service, their cooperation is required in order to make sure the performance runs smoothly. The actor is in the position where they know how the performance unfolds. They know and have rehearsed the content actions, and what the audience will be asked to do. The audience, however, is completely in the dark. They are experiencing everything for the first time in the moment. So, that begs the question. Are audiences expected to be entirely emotionally involved, or be completely detached. Audiences analyze the character's emotions on stage to gain understanding. Are participants then expected to produce emotions to understand the piece? Since audiences are experiencing everything in the immediate moment, Theater creators must understand that they cannot expect the same emotional involvement and control as actors. What makes you feel safe? Would you feel more psychologically and physically secure in a haunted house or receiving a massage? Do jump scares and sudden noises make you feel anxious or exhilarated? Does feeling a stranger's hands on your body make you feel self-conscious or relaxed? Now, let's explore Antonin Artaud's Theater of Cruelty and my emerging theory called Theater of Care. Let's go back in time, just a little bit. The 
leader of cruelty emerged in the 1930s as a response to the stark conditions of the Great Depression. Created by Antonin Artaud, his theory was designed to mimic the real-life brutalities of the Dirty Thirties and create a chaotic environment where the audience was an active participant in the social commentary. Artaud wanted to scare you, but in a productive way. By rejecting previous theater styles, Artaud's theory disregarded form and tried to incite chaos by hurling the spectator into the spotlight to make them the center of the action. Hint, hint, participatory theater. To engage intimately. To appreciate this theory, defining cruelty is vital to understand Artaud's motivation. Cruelty does not consist of the senseless infliction of pain. Instead, it is the creation of art that embodies the brutalities of life and recreates the depicted experience's sensations. Often, this consists of a psychological and sometimes physical shattering of a false reality to violently shock participants out of their complacency. Theater of cruelty is riddled with psychological dangers, unsurprisingly. The lack of consent and safeguards are purposefully factored into the performance's dramaturgy and construction. Danger motivates this art. Once you purchase your ticket, you give consent to the chaos. Participants are meant to teeter alongside their danger and trauma zone, sometimes leaving the performance with lasting harm. Theater of Cruelty wants audiences to face trauma and the brutality of life head on. If Artaud intends to demonstrate the horrors of a murder, audiences will encounter the physical and psychological trauma that occurs when witnessing a murder. Theater of Cruelty thrives off of surprise, danger, and the immediacy of the moment. The dramaturgy of this theory is designed to assault one's senses by placing audiences intimately in the middle of the action without the ability to disconnect from the action. It is meant to borderline the participant's conceptualization of danger and trauma. If Artaud were to ask audiences if they were comfortable watching a traumatic scene, it would completely undermine the purpose. Real-life trauma doesn't ask for consent. So why should theater of cruelty? Sinking Ship Creations' Girl on the Phone tasked me with the time-sensitive job of foiling a kidnapping. Prior to the performance, I was given no information regarding safety measures. If there was a safe word, I didn't know it. The performance began when I received a text message from a distressed girl who needed help undoing handcuffs. I walked her through the process. I later consoled her over the phone as she disclosed the horrors of her kidnapping. She screamed, cried, and often lost connection and would text me distressing and often incoherent messages. I was fully submerged. My ability to function, or not, in this piece could have resulted in the character's death. The chaotic environment created by the artist could have easily pushed an innocent audience member into their danger or trauma zone. Let's step away from our toe a little bit and focus on a theory that is a little more gentle.
theater of care gained popularity during the COVID-19 lockdown. Walking a fine line between theater and personal service, think a therapy session, receiving a massage, or even engaging in sex work, this theory relies on audiences disclosing their emotional vulnerabilities in an intimate performance that is motivated by, well, care. This intimate art form doesn't push the boundaries like theater of cruelty. Instead, it is designed to be a welcoming space tailored to your personal needs. The problem with theater of care is that it mimics the safe and regulated environment of personal services. It exploits the goodwill and trust generated by professional wellness services to benefit the theater company without dedicating time and resources to legitimately achieve the same standard of certification, training, and safeguards. It relies on manipulating audience vulnerabilities by making them feel as if they're in a safe space, but nothing is actually implemented to ensure their safety. Audiences are put in a vulnerable and dangerous situation to be cared for by someone who is conducting performance art, not therapy. Adrian Howell's The Pleasure of Being, Washing, Feeding, Holding is a one-on-one -on -one participatory theater piece where participants undress, are bathed by Howell, wrapped in a robe and cuddled, and then fed chocolate. Performances have a hierarchy where the artist has more social power than the audience. Although the performer is paid to provide an entertainment service, they are ultimately in control of the action. Howells' show is entirely dependent on the participant's physical and psychological cooperation. Consent is ongoing, but there's an expectation to say yes to progress the performance. Although Howells' performance is designed to pamper the participant, the teetering between performance and counterfeit personal service creates an environment where harm is hidden behind the promise of care. Now, I'm going to introduce to you my dear friend, Mo Horner, who is going to talk to us about her experiences with participatory theater. I hope you enjoy. My name is Mo Horner. I am a theater artist and a PhD student and a researcher based in Kingston, Ontario. I make a lot of site-specific and immersive and participatory work, and I also study a lot of site-specific and immersive and participatory work. Uh, I'm currently a co-investigator with uh, Dr. Jen Stevenson at Queen's University on a new book and a project called Play, Play, Dramaturgies of Participation. I'm also doing my PhD on abolitionist dramaturgies with Jen Stevenson in cultural studies at Queen's. And I uh, also work with CFRC as the festival director of the Shortwave Radio Theater Festival. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mo. That was wonderful. Um, yeah, so um, Mo and I worked together for a summer doing research on um, play play dramaturgies of participation, um, which is where I focused uh, some of my research on danger and how that influences uh, the audience experience. So I, I thought to bring Mo in um, to talk a little bit about, um, you know, their own experience with participatory theater and danger. Um, so Mo, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about um, your own experiences with participatory theater, um, good or bad. Yeah, totally. Um, I've always been interested in kind of dissolving the like wide open empty space between artists and audience. 
I've been making like um, really intimate site-specific theater in Kingston since 2012 with a theater company called Cellar Door Project. And so I've always been really interested in um, using space, using intimacy, using um, participation and immersion as a way to, to energize my audiences in, in, in pieces. And um, uh, Jen and I have been working together for almost 10 years when I came to Queens as an undergrad. And uh, in 2019, her and I reconnected and she asked if I wanted to start on this project, which is this Dramaturgies of Participation project. Uh, she had come from some work on autobiography and on theater of the real and wanted to kind of shift her research and realness towards, um, you know, the realness of an audience. Uh, so since 2019, her and I have taught a class together. Uh, we're in the process of writing a book, which is really exciting. Right now we're running a, a summit, an online gathering of artists and scholars of participatory dramaturgy. And yeah, so I've been like making and looking and thinking about participatory work for a long time. And, um, you know, like loads of different experiences with it all. I'm trying to think of like highlight and low light. Like a few highlights for me would be uh, I, right before the pandemic in like January, 2020, I went to Calgary uh, to High Performance Rodeo. Uh, I saw Queer Blind Date, which is a show by Rebecca Northan. And uh, Blind Date is a show that's everywhere. And it's a show where there's a clown on stage, Mimi, and she uh, takes a person from the audience on a blind date and improvised blind date for the whole show. And I'd seen it at the Fathom Playhouse in Gananoque, and uh, I was like really excited to see it again. And uh, since I had seen it at the Playhouse, um, I'd come into my own queerness in a way. So I was like super stoked to go to Calgary, see this gay play, see this play that I loved. Um, did not know that like the world impending doom was like but eight weeks away. So I was very happy that I did that. Um, but like, oh my God, I got my like feet rocked in queer blind date so much it was such a romp it was so um silly I saw the show three times uh they every show they changed not every show but they had two different actors um a man and a woman to play and they would pair with queer partners each night so um like so I had a really fun night one night I went where um I ended up as like a stunt double in the show I don't know if I ever told you about this. Oh my gosh, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was very funny. It was like a, there was a scene where like the clown and the date were supposed to like get really cuddly and the date on stage was like, I don't want to do this. Um, but because I had been studying the show and I had been working, like like I ch chatted with the clown and they knew who I, I was. They were like, you do it. I was like, okay. So I ran on stage, like did a little snuggle and then ran back out and I was so like, stunt you, double. So you were like a stunt double, but with, cuddling yeah on stage really, yeah that's hysterical and like that experience was really special for me in a lot of ways one because um it was really good like it was re really um amazing to see how the artist had planned for that like it was really a really good example of per the participatory need to have um, plan b and I was like, I loved it because it was like so quick and so funny. Um, but the other reason that piece was so important to me was like, I loved Queer Blind Date. Part of the point of Queer Blind Date, I think is about, um, you know, the multiplicity of queer stories and difference and how, you know, someone's coming out or someone's like queer awakening is always different from somebody else's. And seeing that show for three nights in a row and like, being surrounded by a bunch of queers in the audience and like a lot of queer storytelling happening. I was like so energized and I loved it. Um, so that's one of my favorite probably experiences. Wow. Have yeah. you had any, have you had any dangerous experiences in participatory theater? Yeah, definitely. Um, nothing like, like none of the work that I've seen um, in so-called Canada has been like made me feel um, actually really in danger. Um, I had one show that I did like a few years ago where like I felt like they were getting too nosy with my personal information, which felt a little bit like danger. 
Um, but I knew that I could lie or change my story. Um, so I kind of kept myself safe, I think in that situation. Right. Um, but I think you and I have talked about like my, my most dangerous experience in a participatory show, which was, um, I did, I went to sleep no more in New York. Right. Uh, also before the pandemic in August of 2019. Mm -hmm. And for people who haven't heard about sleep no more, it's kind of like quintessential immersive, site-specific participatory commercial experience right now <laughs> it's by a company called punch drunk out of the uk but the show is in uh, like a three-story warehouse or six-story warehouse sorry in, in new york city and it's an adaptation of Macbeth. and uh, basically uh, the audience member is kind of like kicked out of the elevator and told they can go anywhere they want in the whole warehouse and you can go in closets and open drawers and follow actors around and you end up in like dance parties or bathrooms you can eat food that you see all this <laughs> so I have obviously like known about this show for years because it's really like the really kind of like pinnacle of commercial success I think in this in this industry oh for sure uh, and it was like you know, 250 ticket or something like that it's not cheap so I was like okay I'm going to New York to see a different show so I'm gonna do sleep no more so um I go alone and um, it was like, I had to take a few different kinds of transit to get there. It wasn't like close to where I was. Um, and one of the important things about Sleep No More is that the audience is all wearing these like very scary, like white masks to make it obvious of their audience. And the actors are not, uh, they're not masked. And that's one of the ways that you're supposed to be able to keep yourself safe. Cause you're supposed to be able to know you're an audience, you're with the show, you're an audience, you're with the show. So I'm roaming around this warehouse and, I, and I'm on the top floor and there's like a bed on the main, on the, in the center of the room. And I look under the bed and there's a person and he doesn't have a mask on. And I was like, oh, great. I found someone to follow around. I found an actor. Let's do it. So I follow this person around. Um, he was not, his costume like looked very, like it just looked like normal clothes. It wasn't a costume really. But I thought I was like really onto something secret. Like I was like, oh, he's like an undercover actor. Like I really <laughs> found a good one. Yeah. So I'm following him around. He's like taking me at one point, he takes me and this other woman into a closet and puts like uh, like a coat on us. I was like in a white medical coat. Oh. And yeah, and she was like sat in a chair and he kept like sitting us down or standing us up. Nothing too invasive, but like definitely was touching my shoulders and my head. And yeah. I was like, oh, interesting. Because I knew that there could be moments where you'd have one-on-ones. So I, um, I'm following him now. He starts to run away. And I was like, ooh, this must be really secret. And I follow him for like maybe 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Oh um, yeah. And I went into the banquet room and like I, all the action would move away from me. And I found, was following this one person that I thought was like secret. Um, then I see he's like runs up a flight of stairs and opens a door. And it's clear that it's a backstage area. And he panics and runs away. And someone like from the production, like kind of looks out angrily. So this is the moment that I clue in that he is not an actor and that he was just a creep. So yeah, I, I kind of immediately left the show after that experience. I was really um, like, I felt gross and scared and um, I think that situation could have been a lot worse than it was because I wasn't kind of keeping myself safe. I was, um, you know, I could have been, could have been really in a bad situation. And I remember when I got back to Kingston, Jen and I had this conversation and she pointed me to a, a book by Laura Levin called Performing Ground. Hmm. And there's a section in this book that talks about sleep no more and kind of the dangers associated with sleep no more because, you know, I was a, a woman by myself. I didn't know anybody I could have been in, in a really scary situation and, and Laura brings up another interesting point which is that um one there is alcohol at this event people are encouraged to drink and two um the show rewards people for being bold and in my case it rewarded me for being curious or I was fooled into thinking I should be curious yeah and the show itself, it's like, open the drawers, do the thing, say yes, follow your nose. Like it's telling you to be curious and be bold. Um, and that can really embolden people to be kind of scary and to mess with people. And it can, it can put people like me in a situation of like not being suspicious enough to keep myself safe. Cause I was like, don't be suspicious, be curious. 
Um, so although that situation, everything like thankfully was okay, it was a real lesson in like, you know, you, you still have to keep yourself safe and that these, there's a responsibility from artists to build a container that is accessible and build a container that's safe and comfortable for people. But uh, ultimately you're still kind of in charge of your own consent and your own boundaries. And that was like a pretty, that was probably the scariest uh, moment in this project so far. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, like everyone's wearing a mask, right? So you have a few hundred audience members who all look the same. And so there's really like, it's hard to keep people accountable, um, audience members accountable for for what they're doing. So because he was able to kind of disappear into the crowd, right? He he, um, took advantage of of how vulnerable, right? You were as audience members because you thought that you were safe. Um, Yeah. But but you weren't. Um, okay, so I want to talk about you a bit as a theater creator and how you construct your shows around your audience members and their audience experience. Um, so what kind of steps or what kind of things do you do to make sure that the audience members have a safe experience or you know an enjoyable experience? Um, and that they're still able to witness the magic that you're creating. That's a good question, and I think that I can, I should be pretty honest with that. The fact that I think this industry in general does not do as much as it should. Not this industry, sorry, the genre in general of participatory theater does not do as much as it should in regards to access and safety and care. Um, there's a, a a principle that I think about a lot in this context. And I heard it from artist uh, J.D. Derbyshire and Adrian Wong, who say that one size fits one when it comes to care, safety, and accessibility. Oh, that's and great thing. Yeah, and I think that, you know, a lot of shows try to make the claim that they are, like, blanket accessible. Um, and the kind of complexities of care and accessibility and safety means that for some someone's accessible need, like um, lights on, could be someone's um, trigger need to be in the dark, you know what I mean? Like more complex than that. But I think that it's really difficult in participatory work with all of the multiplicities and the choices and the agency um, to really make an experience that's safe, but it's still um, a real necessity. So I'd say like in general, the genre is not good at it, but like, especially as a creator, Cellar Door Project has not done as much work as we should have in this regard. Um, I can only really think of like a few things that we've done. that would ensure safety and accessibility. And I could probably think of like 250 things that we should have done. Um, <laughs> so t- two tactics I would say is, one is like a kind of a result of the pandemic, which is that a lot of work is now digital online or on the radio. And I, I work a little bit in radio theater. And one of the things I really like about doing digital and radio work is um, the ability to opt in and opt out. Uh, okay. and, and assert your own boundaries yourself. Um, I think in many ways it's easy, it, it can become easier. So for example, if I'm watching a show on Zoom and I really don't like it, I just like close my computer and walk away. Right, it's kind of like TV in that sense, right? Like, you know, if, yeah. if oh, this is too scary for me, then, uh, then you can turn it off. Right, and I think as opposed to bourgeois theater, you know, in a proscenium, it's like pretty awkward to like, oh, excuse me, I have to leave. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, Shh, I have to go. And you have to like literally physically like cross a bunch of people's legs. Yeah, which um, is hard, whereas, which is a hard thing which to is do. Hard. Exactly, it's hard. And I feel like one of the things that digital and radio theater allows us to do is it, it allows for people to opt in and opt out and keep themselves safe, maybe in a softer way. So that's one example. I'd say the other example is we used to do this thing as Cellar Door, as the producer of Cellar Door that I thought was really important, which is that we made shows in a lot of, um, in a lot of different spaces in the community. And some of those spaces were um, not accessible or were sensory like overload. Um, One place that we made a show in is Brian's Record Option, which is a very famous record store in Kingston. And it's like a, like a, I don't know, like 20 by 14 foot room with like 80,000 records in it. <laughs> so it's, all, it's very full of a lot of stuff. And uh, it's not an accessible space for people who use mobility aids. Um, 
and a lot of people might find it very um, like overwhelming to look at, or it might be dusty for some people. Um, so we would do a thing where we would sell all of our tickets, not online, only in the location of the show. So mm -hmm. it meant that people had to go to the place to buy a ticket. So if they felt uncomfortable in the place, they would know before they put money on the ticket. That is so brilliant. That's so that was something that we would do. We did it with the grad club show too. Like with the grad club show, we, we eventually, um, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, there's a cat here now. Um, we eventually made space so that we could sell it online because of like practicality sake. Yeah. But it was also important of like, you can come to the bar and see the place before you spend the ticket. So although I think there could have been more done, um, I think that that's like a, that's a tactic. Yeah. Oh, I love the yeah. cat. <laughs> She's very no noisy right now. <laughs> um, one of the shows that we did together was um, uh, the Murder Mystery Show. Oh, yes. Online. At, online. And I yeah. thought, because um, it, so it was a murder mystery show and it was over Zoom and your Zoom breakout room was kind of like your dinner table, right? Yes. Um, yeah. You would, that you would like sit at together and try and yeah. solve the mystery. But they had like integrated into the dramaturgy of the show uh, were security guards. Oh yes, like, that would wander half, around. Who were like half a part of the show, but then half would like monitor if anyone was like being disrespectful or like not playing by the rules. Um, they would They would kick them out or they would like, talk to them and yeah because you were over zoom you could private message the security guards and yes. say I'm having a problem with so-and-so and they would do something about it it was brilliant um yes because it worked well with the show yeah it was in the narrative right yeah it made sense yeah it made sense and I felt safe during that show yeah and I and I also felt that the actors were safe yes which is important it's interesting. I had this conversation with some of these artists that I was talking to over the last few weeks where we talked about how agreements for care or um, asking for consent, it's an agreement between two parties. It's not just one way. And I think that I, I, it's really important when we think about care and safety that it's like reciprocal. It needs to be reciprocal both for the artist, uh, sorry, our audience and the artists. There's a lot of research from Sleep No More um, of artists that were actors in that show that got abused by audience members also. So there's like a kind of a, a double, a two-way agreement that needs to happen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So interesting. Um, so before we finish for today, um, what are some of the things that you think artists can do to make spaces safer? Oh, it's a very good question. Very good question. I think that I think really a lot of it is about multiplicity and complexity, which is that an, an awareness from artists and creators that there is no like template for this or that um, when you think about access and care and safety that there kind of has to be like a hundred different offerings, which is difficult. And I mean, I acknowledge that for a lot of like independent producers, like it costs money also to make people pieces safe mm -hmm. um but I think that what I've learned mostly is that the complexity of individuals needs needs to be taken into account um and if there is a rehearsal process for the show and you're asking for a lot from your audiences how can you rehearse care safety access opting out like if you're rehearsing the lines are you rehearsing um the potentials for danger i think that's a thing that i've also learned is that as we create these shows we need to create these like in-depth safety care precautionary packages at the same time like it's a process that should be happening at the same time and then it allows for what you're saying which is like these kind of care principles or our dramaturgical practices that can be inside the show as opposed to on top so as opposed to like, here's a handout with a number you can call, make the <laughs> character in the play use a phone. And, you know, like, that's really simple. But I think that this kind of like, great. Okay. Well, thank you so nice to much. See you, Haley. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Thanks for having the conversation. No, thank you so much for, for joining and for being a part of it. Oh, my pleasure. Brilliant.
Although Theatre of Cruelty and Theatre of Care are packaged as entirely different experiences, their intersection of getting into one's soul face similar dangerous implications. Although audience experiences might be different on the surface, these art forms' lasting emotional implications can leave participants feeling exposed and traumatized. Theater of Cruelty's lack of consent versus Theater of Care's empty flooding of consent poses different obstacles for ensuring these art forms provide audiences with the safest and most artistically stimulating experience. Recognizing the implications of exploiting the theatrical environment to toy with participants' vulnerabilities will allow artists to generate strategies to ensure their performance is equipped to handle the implications of their intimate interactions. Implementing meaningful consent, ensuring the venue is accessible, and providing immediate mental health resources for audiences will ensure that theater of cruelty and theater of care are safe experiences. Thank you so much for joining me today to chat about my research on the psychological dangers in participatory theater. I wanted to give another big thank you to Dinah Jansen at CFRC and Mo Horner for all of your help, love, and support. Thank you so much.